Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And welcome to episode 159 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Anne Durrant, Carolina W, Courtney Stewart, and Kerry Whitehead. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Men. Men was released in 2022. It has 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb and 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. In the aftermath of a personal tragedy, Harper retreats alone to the beautiful English countryside, hoping to find a place to heal. However, someone or something from the surrounding woods appears to be stalking her. Before I start talking about this film, I need to say first of all that Sinead from The Poisoner's Cabinet and the wonderful Dave Keane came to see this film with me and they will be chiming in later for their 10 second film review of this film. The second thing that I'm going to say is that this film should come with a massive trigger warning. So if you are going to see this film, I do recommend doing a does the dog die search. And if you're wondering what I mean by does the dog die, it is a website where you can search pretty much any film and people will list the trigger warnings that are in that film or the potentially triggering content. I mean, there's a huge trigger warning attached to this film for both suicide and domestic violence. I just wanted to say that before we got into it because it's a pretty intense film. So I'm going to go through my likes and dislikes as usual. Let's start with the likes. The acting in this film I thought was phenomenal. Jessie Buckley plays our protagonist and I thought she was absolutely fantastic. And her partner is played by Papa, I think it's Papa Esidu. And he's not in the film very much, but he does a very good performance when he is in the film. And the other actor that I need to give props to is Rory Kinnear. Rory Kinnear plays all of the rest of the men in this film. And he does a standout job of playing all of the rest of the men. He does such a good job that if I saw Rory Kinnear in the street now, I would be hard pushed not to punch that man in the face, let me tell you. All of the different men from the downright weird to the very, very naked to the creepy vicar to the teenage boy. He played all of those men and he played them very well and fair play to him because I'd say that was not an easy ask. And actors aside, the atmosphere was incredibly tense and I genuinely was really, really scared watching it initially. We'll talk about the ending later. But initially I felt really unnerved watching it because it's about a woman who has experienced great trauma, who is suffering from PTSD, who goes out to a country house in a rural community, a very rural community, basically in the middle of nowhere. And she then gets stalked by a mystery man and the reaction of all the other men in the area. And you know what? I really found it genuinely frightening and unnerving. And I honestly was thinking while I was watching the film, I'm going to have to walk home after this. And when I walk home, I'm going to be in my house alone and I'm going to find that really scary. And I have to say, it really takes a lot for a film to make me feel like that because I've seen so many. I watch at least one horror film a week. So it takes a lot for a film to really scare me in that way. And let me tell you, this one did. I was unnerved. I felt worried for her. I could relate to some of the experiences that she had had with men in the community. And I'm sure lots of people watching this film will be able to relate to some of the experiences that she has with men in the community. And I just thought, wow, 
This is clever. This is good. And as you guys know, if you've been listening for a long time, I like a horror movie that really makes you think. And for a long time in the film, I couldn't decide whether what was happening was because of her PTSD, whether it was because of what she'd experienced with her partner previously. And I really was kind of kept on edge trying to figure out what was real and what wasn't. And fundamentally, it's a horror film that's all about toxic masculinity and what toxic masculinity does to both men and women. And I thought, okay, this is cool. This is an interesting concept. I'm down with this. People of all genders experience toxic masculinity at some point. So I think it was the stuff in it for everybody to relate to. And I felt really intrigued as to where this was going to go. And kind of as my last like for this film, I really, really thought it was a powerful portrayal of domestic violence. And while it didn't shy away from being raw and brutal, and I actually found elements of it quite shocking and not in a gratuitous way, I thought the portrayal of domestic violence was quite realistic. So there were moments of extreme violence, but there was also moments that showed how subtle and insidious domestic violence can be and how it actually impacts the victim going forward and how it impacts their life going forward. And I thought, yeah, props for that one. So there's a lot to like, a lot of big things to like. There were also a lot of big things to dislike, like the sheer amount of vaginas. Like I wanted to love this film and I think I did really like it. Like I think I liked it, but I cannot express, I cannot express how hideous the last 15 minutes of this film actually was. I totally understand the allure of body horror. Like lots of people really enjoy body horror and they kind of like enjoy being grossed out by it. You know what I mean? And I definitely don't want to take that away from anybody. But let me tell you, there were so many vaginas and so many heads bursting forth from vaginas. And my God, it was a lot. And I get it. I get that birth is a beautiful thing. I've never given birth. I assume it's beautiful. Intellectually, I know it's a miracle every time that it happens. I understand all of that. I also understand that birth can be truly horrendous for lots of people. And again, I've not experienced it, but what I do not need to see, I do not need to see the head of an adult man emerging from a vagina. I just, I just don't need to see it. I don't need to see it. I got to the point, genuinely, where I thought, I can't actually physically take much more of this. I might have to walk out of the cinema, take a break for a few minutes and go back in again. And I am somebody who both hates toxic masculinity and also is in proud possession of a vagina and I could not deal with the last 15 minutes of this film. And I actually think that's my main big dislike. I felt like the last 15, 20 minutes of this film just took away from the message. I thought the message was really strong. I thought it was an interesting concept. But actually what happened was I walked away from this film consumed by what happened in the last 15 minutes and trying to understand why on earth it happened and why on earth it was included in the film in the way that it was. And I think that people will walk away discussing the last 15 minutes which is actually a bit of a shame because it wasn't the clever part of the film. I kind of understood the message they were trying to get across and I'm being purposefully ambiguous because it's a film that's currently in the cinema and I don't want to ruin it for people. I understood the message they were trying to get across but I think there was probably a better way of getting it across. It felt like they had done this atmospheric, interesting, mind-bendy portrayal of something that happens to everybody in their everyday life, generally probably more subtly, but I think there was bits in it that everyone could hang on to. And then they just exploded the last 15 minutes to try and get a big, dare I say, climax to the film. I don't really know. I found it just, (laughs) I found the last 15 minutes horrendous. Also, I want to give a notable mention to the horror of Rory Kinnear's adult human man head being CGI'd onto the body of an adolescent boy, but not trying to make it look any younger. So he just had a big adult head on an adolescent boy's body. It looked completely bizarre and out of place and gave me kind of, um, you know, Helena Bonham Carter's big head in Alice in Wonderland. It gave me that kind of vibes. It was very strange. It was very off-putting. I couldn't really get my head around what was happening with that. And my final dislike is I don't really know if I fully can get on board with a film that was written and directed by a man that is supposed to be about the experience of women 
because it is it is about the experience of women at the core so I don't know if it was best placed to have a man write and direct that so before I give it a number out of five I'm just going to get Sinead and Dave Keane's input for you their 10 second film reviews of the film Men Excellent performances, really beautiful setting, very well shot, but descended into a batshit crazy idea that just didn't work mashing two ideas together. It, not for me, but it was definitely one to talk about. I think is uh, um, an allegory of misogyny, um, a sensitively written feminist movie written by a man, um, which starts as a psychological horror, becomes a body shock horror, and then becomes a what the fuck... I'm actually, I'm very disappointed to give this film a three out of five. I want it to be a four, but I just don't think I can do it. So three out of five. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which brings us to our story this week. You will be very glad to know that our story this week will have much less vaginas than the film review. But before we get into it, I just want to let you know that there will be a video, a YouTube video, coming with this story this week. It will be out, hopefully on Sunday at the same time as the episode. But if not, it will be out Monday or Tuesday. Keep an eye on the YouTube channel. It's Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast, I think, on YouTube. The link to our YouTube channel is in the description of every episode. So you can just subscribe if you want. Or just go and watch the video at some point later in the week. The second thing is that this story is a kind of a bit of an homage to something that we all, I think, probably have in common as spooky people who like spooky stories. It's one of those stories that I wanted to do for a really long time. Couldn't quite figure out how to do it. I didn't know if I wanted to do like a narrative or if I wanted to do it really factually. And I ended up settling on doing this story really factually because I think it actually adds to it to do it factually and you'll see why later. So it's kind of going to be a bit of a history, a bit of a chat. It's a kind of a, a different episode than what than what is normal, I suppose. But it was something that I have wanted to cover for a really long time because it is a story that has just really captured me since I was a kid. And I'm sure that a lot of you will feel the same way about this story. And a lot of you will have a lot of thoughts and opinions about this story too. And the final thing that I want to say before we get into this story is that there will be no main episode next week. So there'll be no main episode on Sunday the 12th of June, but there will be a mini episode instead. And I'll be back as normal doing main episodes the week after. So let's get into it. I don't think there has ever been a story that captivated me more. In the childhood era of worrying about acid rain, quicksand and spontaneous human combustion, I was also obsessed with the Loch Ness Monster. And not in an anxiety-inducing way. I loved the idea of the Loch Ness Monster. And to be honest, I still do. The fact that Nessie became mainstream is just a testament to her power. People have been gripped with Nessie fever for years. And even though there are likely very few people that truly believe she is real, she is also regarded with a definite degree of fondness. I don't think there is anyone listening that would be disappointed if it turned out the Loch Ness Monster was actually real. In order to understand and really get to grips with the Loch Ness Monster, we need to go all the way back to the year 565. We briefly covered this story in episode 110, but that was quite a while ago, so let me quickly refresh your memory. 
In 565 AD, St. Columba, an Irish missionary who introduced Christianity to Scotland, went to battle with the beast of Loch Ness. The beast had been terrorising the local villages and killing people, carrying them off into the lake. St. Columba, with all of his divine power, managed to banish the beast to the depths, thus saving the people from her scaly grips. It's very likely, of course, that this story was a complete fabrication designed to demonstrate the divine power of St. Columba, and thus make it more likely for people to believe the message of Christianity that he spread. While we can, of course, be reasonably sceptical about the story of St. Columba, there is reason to believe that stories of a beast in Loch Ness aren't isolated to this particular incident. As is written on LochNessSightings.com, in 1527, Duncan Campbell saw a terrible beast on the Loch Shore. Again, there was a period of very few sightings until 1879, when a group of children saw a small head on a long neck on the North Shore. From this time onwards, regular sightings were reported of the water kelpie, or a water horse, but all of them were written in a manner that the kelpie was expected to be there. As in, it wasn't a surprise that she existed. There is evidence to suggest that the people of the Highlands had legends and stories of a beast that lived in the loch for centuries. They believed that there was some unknown large creature living in the water. And though we might associate Nessie fever with the 20th century, the fact that there were monsters in Loch Ness was written about throughout the 17 and 1800s, suggesting that there is perhaps cause to give more credence to the legends. Before we go any further, we need to address the elephant in the room. Or rather, the plesiosaur in the room. There have been very famous Nessie hoaxes, and we need to at least make a mention of them. In December 1933, Marmaduke Wetherell made a startling discovery that would change the face of paleontology and cryptozoology forever. Marmaduke Wetherell was a big game hunter, and he was commissioned by the newspaper The Daily Mail to hunt down the Loch Ness Monster once and for all. In his perimeter sweep, Wetherell found three mysterious footprints, and from his expert analysis, he deduced that the footprints belonged to a huge, powerful, soft-footed creature about 20 feet long. The Daily Mail headlines were alight with claims that Nessie was real and they had found her casts of the footprints were sent to the Natural History Museum where they were thoroughly examined and it seems they generated some genuine curiosity and excitement. Is it possible that a huge four-legged creature with soft feet could be residing in the lock? Could it be that this was the key to unlocking a centuries-old mystery? And if it was, it would seem that the Loch Ness Monster had footprints of a creature that greatly resembled a hippopotamus. And that's exactly what it was, a hippopotamus. But how in the world did a hippopotamus end up in the highlands of Scotland? Marmaduke Wetherill, that's how. On his travels as a big game hunter, he had acquired an ashtray made from a cast of a hippopotamus and used the ashtray to make the casts of the Nessie footprints. It was a pretty basic plan, but its simplicity worked and it stirred up a lot of Nessie interest at the time. On April the 21st, 1934, the Daily Mail published what is arguably the most famous picture of the monster, known as the surgeon's photograph. The photograph was reportedly made by a doctor named Robert Kenneth Wilson. The photograph depicts the trademark long neck of Nessie emerging from rippling water, For decades, believers and critics debated the authenticity of the photograph, with myriad theories about its subject. In his 1984 article in the British Journal of Photography, Stuart Campbell analysed the famed photo. The original version of the surgeon's photograph shows a dark band along the top of the image and provides a sense of scale between the monster and the lock. In the version published by the Daily Mail, The image is substantially cropped in, blurring the subject's shape, 
and skewing its scale to suggest that it is substantially larger. After comparing the two versions, Campbell concluded that the object in the water could only have been a few feet long at most. He speculated that it might be a seabird or an otter. In 1994, 60 years after it graced the pages of the Daily Mail, Christopher Sperling verified the photograph as a hoax by admitting his involvement in its production. After Sperling revealed the photograph as a hoax, he explained that he had been enlisted to help create a model of the monster's neck and place it on a toy submarine. Robert Kenneth Wilson was chosen to give the photograph to the media because of his trusted reputation as a doctor. Robert Kenneth Wilson was the stepson of Marmaduke Wetherill. While it may not be proof of the Loch Ness Monster's existence, the surgeon's photograph had a tremendous impact on the thoughts, ideas and beliefs of many people around the world. It remains an important part of photo history and serves as a reminder of photography's fickle relationship with truth. It also serves as a reminder that sometimes someone with an agenda will go to great lengths to prove a point. I am unsure as to what Marmaduke Wetherill's agenda was. Perhaps he set out on a vendetta against the Daily Mail in an attempt to make them look stupid? Perhaps he just wanted a payday? Perhaps he really believed there was something in the lake, but without a means to prove it, he thought the only way to prove it was to fake it. Perhaps he was just an eccentric, who thought it was all a big laugh, but who knows? Unfortunately, in a way, the antics of Marmaduke Wetherill had a really detrimental effect on further sightings of Nessie, as they were now much easier to dismiss. There are, however, other sightings of a monster in the lock that are not believed to be hoaxes. So let's get into it. In 1933, a new road was completed that stretched the length of Loch Ness and gave drivers a full view of the lock. The lock is long and thin and approximately 23 miles in length, so it makes for a pretty scenic drive. On the 14th of April, Mrs. McKay and her husband were driving along this new road from Drumnadricket to Inverness. The black water was calm. It always struck Mrs. McKay just how dark the water was. The excess rain in the highlands and the resulting runoff of peat stained the water to such a degree where it was genuinely black. Nothing can be seen below the surface. It always maintained an air of magic and mystery. As Mrs. McKay sat in the passenger seat, she gazed out over the water towards Aldery Castle. And there in the water she saw something. Something big and black loomed above the surface. It went in a circle and then dove back down under the water. Stop, she yelled at her husband. The beast! This sighting is widely regarded as the first modern sighting of the monster. On the afternoon of July the 22nd, 1933, Mr. and Mrs. George Spicer were driving along the east side of Loch Ness in Scotland. It was around 3.30 or 4pm and the couple were somewhere about halfway between Doris and Foyers. They were climbing a slight hill when an extraordinary creature crossed the road in front of their car from left to right. It was only in view for a couple of seconds and it practically took up the whole road as it crossed. The location on the body where the Spicers presumed there would have been a head was across the road before they had time to take in the whole shape properly. The skin was a greyish colour, like a dirty elephant or a rhinoceros. The body of the creature was large and thick and moved across the road in a series of jerks. A long tentacle, which was presumed to be a neck, stretched towards the right of the road in the direction of the lake, which was about 40 feet down the slope from the road. This neck undulated up and down, twisting in a series of half loops, and vanished into the shrubbery on the side of the road. There were no visible legs of any sort, nor a tail, but where the body sloped down to the start of the neck, about four or five feet above the roadway, the Spicers saw something flopping up and down. 
which Mr. Spicer later thought was the end of a long tail swung around the body. Mrs. Spicer felt the object was an additional small animal, slung or riding on the creature. Mr. Spicer described the creature as looking overall like a huge snail with a long neck. The road is at least 12 feet across, with a grassy verge on each side. The creature had fully crossed the road and vanished down the slope by the time the Spicer's car reached the spot, and the trees between the road and the lake blocked any good view of the shoreline itself. They slowed down as they passed the spot, but didn't stop. The grass on the side of the road looked trampled down, and on the side away from the lake which climbed away from the road some, there appeared to be a sort of track. At the time of the sighting, neither of the Spicers had heard anything about the relatively new reports of a monster being seen in Loch Ness. And when they stopped a man on a bicycle a short time later to tell him what they saw, he was the first person to inform them of the reports that were just starting to be circulated. The first public notice of the Spicers' odd sighting was a letter that Mr. Spicer sent to the Inverness Courier, a local newspaper, which was published on August the 4th of the same year. When later interviewed by Rupert T. Gould, who was investigating the reports of a monster in the lake, Mr. Spicer had to admit that the original letter was written in haste and an endeavour not to exaggerate. In his attempt not to overdo the details, Mr. Spicer actually underestimated the size of the creature he saw as only six to eight feet long, but a later reinspection of the road made it clear to him that the creature had been much, much larger, closer to 25 feet in length. The Spicer's encounter remains a key and controversial report of a creature in or near Loch Ness. It does not match up with the popular idea of a dinosaur-like creature, and it shows that theories must also consider creatures that can leave the lake. At the same time, no other sighting has ever been reported to show anything similar to the slug-like creature the Spicers encountered. And there are so many more. 1941. In December, Callum McFarlane Barrow and his brother Patrick both saw a large creature in the loch near Fort Augustus. They saw the same creature twice in the same day, and Callum explained in 2018 that such sightings were much more common amongst the local population at that time. In 1961, in May, George Cutts and three others were driving to foyers on the south side of the lock at 8pm in the evening. They pulled into a lay-by where they saw what looked like an upturned boat about a quarter of the way out across the lock. It wasn't moving, but it had salmon jumping around it and it was like an elephant's back. It was 8pm on Foyers Road. They tried to flag down a passing van but it didn't stop. After this they made their way to Foyers but decided not to tell anyone. Mr. Cutts of Inverness finally told the story in September 2019. 1965 On the 23rd of July Mr. and Mrs. Brand were in company of Mrs. Brand's father Mr. Andrew Walker and were motoring along the Doris side of Loch Ness. They spotted the Loch Ness Monster directly opposite Urquhart Castle. The object, they said, of considerable size, surfaced quite close to the shore and immediately made for the centre of the loch at speed. The loch itself was calm as a mill pond at the time and the surprised party were fascinated for several minutes until Nessie submerged. All three had previously been sceptical about the existence of Nessie but since this incident changed their views. 1969. In May, Fred Millwood of Inverness was travelling towards Inverness in late May when he saw a 10-12 foot long creature travelling across the lake at around 4 miles an hour. He said it was like an upturned boat and there was no head visible. When it was about 2-300 to metres from the other side, it disappeared. He waited for about half an hour but nothing resurfaced. In October, local boy Peter McKenzie and his uncle Ian McRae were fishing in a small boat at the north end of the lock. Their fishing log states that they were going down past Aldery Castle at around 5.15pm, 100 yards out. The wind was southwesterly and it was slight. It had been calm. They then saw what they first took to be the wake of a speedboat coming towards them from the direction of the Klansman Hotel. It then appeared that there was a shape that was not a boat at the head of the wake. 
which then disappeared. The object then resurfaced and headed for the middle of the lock, where they could see it in profile. Peter said it had the colour and shape of an elephant. It then disappeared under the water and their boat rocked in the waves caused by it. The whole episode took about two minutes. 1971 During the August of 1971, on a Sunday afternoon, Richard Hayworth was standing alone on the front lawn of Temple Pier House, looking across a flat, calm Urquhart Bay in glorious sunshine. As he looked across to the Enric River mouth and scanned left towards the castle, he noticed a wake of water. At the front of the wake was what looked like a black hockey stick standing vertically out of the water with the hook at the top. Initially he thought it might have been a swan, but as it moved, at considerable speed in the direction of Urquhart Castle, it passed by a moored yacht close to the shore, and the hook or head was clearly higher than the deck, making it at least five feet in height. The sighting lasted a couple of minutes. 1974. Mr. J. Gray and his friend, both of Inverness, saw what looked like an upturned boat moving around in the water near foyers one evening. Although deciding not to tell anyone, they had the sighting confirmed shortly afterwards when they met another person. He relayed these details to the website LochnessSightings.com in 2019. And the sightings continue. In case you are interested in tracking all of the 1,000 recorded sightings of Nessie, trust me, there are a lot, you can find them all on LochnessSightings.com. It is worth a read, and those sightings are taken directly from that website. The website does not add any exaggeration and just tells the bare bones of the sightings. But having visited Loch Ness, it seems inevitable that there would be stories about a beast who lived there. The water is pitch black, it is twice as deep as the North Sea, and you could fit the entire world's population in the lake three times over. It would perhaps be more surprising if there weren't stories about something lurking in the murky depths. In 1987, Operation Deep Scan was launched in response to the overwhelming number of sightings that were happening on the lock. The lock itself is long and thin, so 24 boats launched a sonar investigation. They spread out side by side the width of the lake, equipped with sonar, and slowly made their way down the length, scanning the murky depths as they went. What they found was interesting, but inconclusive. The sonar made contact with a huge object in the absolute depths of the lake. Some believed that this huge object was organic, some big living thing. While others believed that it was debris at the bottom of the lake. Interestingly, there is said to be an airplane wreckage at the bottom of the lake. And there is definitely a huge model of Nessie that sank to the bottom after being used to make a film about Sherlock Holmes. In 2003, a version of Operation Deep Scan occurred again, but there was no evidence of any large life form lurking in the depths of Loch Ness, so scientists had to admit that she was probably just a myth. But her story isn't that cut and dry. In 2020, the boat, the spirit of Loch Ness, picked up something startling which has been undeniably verified by scientists and sonar experts. This month I went to Loch Ness in search of the spirit of Loch Ness and guess what? This story is true and it is absolutely not made up for the tourist clout. Here is what happened as reported by the Inverness Courier. The most compelling sonar images of a 32 foot long object some 500 feet below the lock's surface have been revealed and experts believe they are the most convincing images yet of the mysterious creature said to lurk in the icy depths of Britain's most famous and mysterious waterway. The stunning sonar image was captured by Cruise Loch Ness director Ronald Mackenzie, who has worked on the lock for more than 30 years. It was around 4.30pm last Wednesday during the last sailing of the day that the dramatic contact was made aboard this two-year-old catamaran, the spirit of Loch Ness. 
It was a bit of a drich day and we only had 12 passengers on board. I was skippering because the usual skipper had the day off, said Mr Mackenzie, who runs the company with his wife Debbie. We were at our halfway point, off Invermarston, where we turn around. The water is 189 metres or 620 feet in depth there. The passengers were quite excited because we had just spotted a sea eagle. But then I saw on the sonar something more eye-catching. It was right bang smack in the middle of the lock at about 170 metres or 558 feet down. Because the boat was doing 10.7 knots, it was unable to detect if it was moving or stationary. But it was big, at least 10 metres or 33 feet. The contact lasted 10 seconds while we passed over. I've been on the lock since I was 16 years old and I have never seen anything like it. We have had contacts in the past, but nothing like this. We have real, state-of-the-art sonar on the new boat. It doesn't lie. It can't lie. It captures what is there. I've always got my eyes glued to the screen, but I've never seen anything like this. One of the guides on board told passengers that we had a strong contact. They had been watching the Sea Eagle, unaware of what was below. I believe there's something in the lock that nobody knows what it is, and we should just leave it alone. I've always thought there was something there, be it a big eel or a sturgeon or a big fish of some sort, or even Nessie. It's blown me away. I've been looking at it all night and all morning, and it is something big. Leading sonar expert Craig Wallace described the images as 100% genuine. Mr. Wallace, Marine Robotics Senior application Specialist with Konesberg Maritime, has surveyed Loch Ness about half a dozen times. Four years ago, he famously detected and discovered the lost model of Nessie, which was used during the filming of The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes in 1970. The scientist was in no doubt about the authenticity of Mr. Mackenzie's startling sonar image. There is no question that there is real, clear and distinct contact. It is a 100% real target. It is 100% genuine. I do believe that large sturgeon do enter Loch Ness. So maybe it's sturgeon or maybe a small shoal of fish, said Mr. Wallace. Nessie expert Steve Feltham who had set a world record for the longest vigil of looking for the monster, said Mr. Mackenzie's sonar image was the most compelling evidence of the existence of the legendary creature. It's extremely exciting. There is no comparison in clarity for the evidence that we've been looking for, that there are big animals swimming around in Loch Ness. I have known Ronald Mackenzie for 30 years. He's a Highland lad who does not seek publicity and who shies away from the fanciful Nessie theories. He is not somebody who would cry wolf, or Nessie. But within seven minutes of getting the sonar contact, he messaged me and I said, this is the most credible and compelling evidence in 30 years. I think it's the most crystal clear evidence and the least debatable piece of evidence. It is a big object 60 feet off the bottom. This is 100% genuine. If I was asked to pick the best ever sighting of Nessie, I would say this one, and I would be willing to stand beside Ronald and say so. It is startling. When I first came, I thought I was looking for a plesiosaur, then a Wells catfish, which it might be, and I'm currently reappraising the evidence. The jury is out, but I definitely believe Nessie is an animal. I think we're getting closer to finding the answer. The vast majority of sightings can be explained, but that still leaves those that can't be explained. The reality is that people are seeing something that can't be explained. It's not going to be a dinosaur or a giant eel, but it's something living in the lock that's bigger than is currently known about. And this thing is undeniably huge. And it happened again, just weeks later about a mile from the original spot the boat picked up something very big and very much alive on the sonar and no one is any closer to finding out exactly what it is. And if you're still in doubt that something big lives in Loch Ness, let me tell you this. When I was on the Spirit of Loch Ness, 
They talked candidly about not believing in Nessie as the fantasy plesiosaur that is touted in the media and in stories. But they did question whether there is something bigger than we imagine in the Loch. The tour itself actually isn't about the Loch Ness Monster at all. It's centred around the geography of the Loch, how it was formed and the wildlife and the flora that exist in and around the Loch. But the tour guide did tell a curious little story that happened to a friend of his. A few years ago, his friend took a small boat out onto the loch on a particularly warm and still day and was fishing somewhere in the middle of the lake. It was calm and easy and two swans landed on the lake near his boat. And then something happened. He was admiring the swans when suddenly one of the swans disappeared under the surface. He waited for it to resurface and it didn't. It was simply dragged under in an instant by something very big and clearly very hungry. And maybe that's not enough to convince you, so I'm going to leave you with this. The most abundant fish in Loch Ness is a fish called the Arctic char, and they're a relatively big fish. But scientists didn't even know they were in the lake until the late 1980s. So in recent years, Professor Neil Gemmell, a geneticist from New Zealand's University of Otago, decided that it was time to find out exactly what was in Loch Ness via DNA sampling, which is a pretty solid mode of evidence. They took approximately 250 buckets of water from all different parts of the loch and sent the water away for sampling. 25% of the DNA that they found in Loch Ness remains completely unidentified. So you might want to stick around for the theories bit of this episode. But before we get into the theories, I just want to say that the sources that I use for this episode are linked in the show notes. But I really need to give a special shout out to a website called DontTakePictures.com where I got the information about the surgeon's photograph. I need to give a really big shout out to AnomalyInfo.com where I directly got the story of Mr. and Mrs. Spicer's slug Loch Ness Monster encounter. And I also need to give a massive shout out to LochNessSightings.com where I directly got the sightings of the Loch Ness Monster. And I decided not to turn this story into a narrative because it's already been turned into a narrative a million times. So I wanted to stick to the factual accounts of the sightings that have happened over the years. And that's why I chose to take them directly from the sightings websites. So let's get into the theories. Theory number one is that the Loch Ness Monster was created by hoteliers. And this was actually put forward by the BBC. And the whole article is in the description of this episode, so you can read it there. Interestingly, Mrs. McKay, from the very first sighting in 1933, was the proprietor of a hotel in Drumnadricket. And she was obviously part of one of the first and most famous sightings of the creature. Now, the thing is, is that lots of people say that Nessie is only kept alive because she brings in loads of money for tourism. And I don't doubt that she brings in loads of money for tourism. But I actually believe that people go to Loch Ness for the most part to see the beauty of the Scottish Highlands and then Loch Ness and the, and the Loch Ness Monster is an added bonus. I don't think there are very many people like me who went to Loch Ness specifically looking for the Loch Ness Monster. I think the Loch Ness Monster is just a kind of a welcome add-on. And maybe the Loch Ness Monster put Loch Loch Ness on the map in a very particular worldwide way that means that they get a lot of visitors. And I actually don't agree with this theory. Mrs. McKay didn't come forward and say that it was her who had had the sighting until years later. She reported the sighting, I think, pretty anonymously. I don't think she was named at all. And then years and years later, when she was an old woman, she gave an interview about the sighting and still maintained that it was real. And there is a man called Dr. Adrian Shrine, who has studied Nessie for years. And he's a very interesting man because I think he started out his studies really believing that Nessie was this like plesiosaur type creature. And he no longer thinks that. But he also respects the fact that he believes that the people believe that what they have seen is something extraordinary. 
There is also a man named Dr. Charles Paxton, who is a research fellow and statistical ecologist for St. Andrews University, who studies the recorded sightings of Loch Ness. And there are around a thousand. And he said, yeah, lots of these reported sightings came from like cafe owners and hoteliers and all sorts of different people. And he did state kind of on record that, yeah, it is possible that some people have an agenda. They absolutely do have an agenda. But he also said that he believed that the majority of the reported sightings were genuine and that the people genuinely believed they had seen something interesting. And I think as a side note, it's important to note as well that much of the industry in and around Loch Ness, like Fort Augustus, Drumdrickid, seems to be cafes, restaurants, hotels, etc. because of people, tourists coming to, to stay in the Highlands. So it kind of makes sense that if Highland people from in and around Inverness were having these sightings, then it is very likely that that would be their job. It's not unusual to have a higher number of cafe owners, hoteliers, etc. in a predominantly tourist-driven area. And therefore, they would make up a large proportion of the sightings. So while I think absolutely definitely there's some people that are going to be pushing the agenda about the Loch Ness Monster brings in money, I don't think it accounts for all of the sightings. Interestingly, the hotel that Mrs. McKay was a proprietor of in Drumna Drickett is now a Loch Ness Monster Information Centre. Would highly recommend going. It's very interesting. I believe it is or at least was run by Dr. Adrian shrine i'm not sure if he's still alive actually but it at least was run by him and i visited it when i was there and you will be able to see it in the video that comes out this week so it's an interesting little place and the second theory is all about king kong as in the movie king kong lots of people believe that king kong was the inspiration for why nessie sightings became really popular and how Nessie was imagined to be a plesiosaur. But King Kong came out in August 1933 in Scotland. But the sightings of the Loch Ness Monster started happening much earlier in 1933. And in the movie, King Kong at some point wrestles a big plesiosaur type creature. And there were people that believed that, yeah, this is the inspiration for why Nessie is seen to be a plesiosaur. And while I think that yes, it probably contributed to the ongoing impact of the fantasy of of it being a big lizard-type creature, I don't think it's solely responsible for the uptick in sightings of the Loch Ness Monster. And in fact, I'm pretty sure there'd been sightings of something in the lake for a very long time prior to that. Which brings us swiftly on to theory number three, which is that Nessie is a leftover plesiosaur, which is a big water dinosaur which has flippers a big body a long neck and a sort of horse-shaped head and I think it's around 40% of the sightings say that there was a horse-like head and a long neck and I feel like that description was probably magnified by the Spicer sighting which was a slug-like creature with a long neck and specifically the surgeon's photo which was obviously a hoax but it showed a plesiosaur type creature coming out of the water but here's the kicker the science of it is that it's just not possible according to the science of it plesiosaurs liked warm shallow water and basically Loch Ness is just too cold and it's too dark and there just isn't enough vegetation to sustain enough fish in order to feed one plesiosaur never mind multiple plesiosaurs I mean, if it's still being seen, the implication would be that there's multiple plesiosaurs that are breeding in the loch. And they also, which I didn't realise, they were air breathers. So they'd have to surface regularly for air. If that was the case, they would be seen much more regularly and would be, it would be known what they were and it would be accepted that that was what they were and it wouldn't be a big mystery. So I think plesiosaurs, off the list. Get rid of that theory. And one of the next theories, which kind of links the plesiosaurs in this idea of a long neck, is that it's an eel. It's a really big eel. And there are some huge, and I mean huge, eels that exist in the world. 
And there's also some pretty big eels that live in Loch Ness, which could account for some of the sonar sightings. But I don't think eels are very likely to surface in the same way as is said in the reported sightings. So over 50% of the sightings report seeing what looks like an upturned boat in the water that's moving through the water really quickly. And while that might technically be an eel, the problem with that is eels of that size to be that big that it looks like the size of an upturned boat. They've never been caught in rivers, lakes or locks anywhere else in the world. But maybe it is a big old eel. The Arctic char were not found in Loch Ness until like the 1980s. You know, scientists just didn't know they were there. And then suddenly they figured out, oh, there's loads of fish in here and it's Arctic char. So it's not like they haven't not realised there was certain species of fish in Loch Ness before. So maybe Loch Ness is its own crazy ecosystem that allows for giant eel to live in there. And it's also important to note at this point that Loch Ness is open to the sea. So creatures can come from the sea into Loch Ness. Loch Ness is obviously fresh water. The sea is obviously salt water, which may cause problems, but it's just worthwhile keeping a note of that. Theory number five is that it's all a big hoax. Possible. There are definite hoaxes. We know there were hoaxes, but are they all hoaxes? No, I don't think so. And when you have scientists that are saying, look, Whatever these people are seeing, they believe they're seeing something. And I don't believe, therefore, that all of these sightings, that a thousand sightings over the years, are hoaxes. What they are more likely to be, which is theory number six, is mistaken identity. Sometimes seals end up in the lock, which from a distance might look like something very mysterious if you're not expecting them to be there. There was this really famous photo in like the 1930s, which was said to be the Loch Ness Monster. And then I think photo analysts like in modern times realised that the photo was much likely to be a big dog swimming with a stick in its mouth. And because obviously photos at the time were not very good at capturing things at a distance, it ended up looking like something completely different. There are like loads of reports of the Loch Ness Monster, which actually end up being wakes from boats and when I say wakes because I didn't understand what the term wakes was for ages a boat wake is that v-shaped wave that's left when a boat cut through cuts through the water and boat wakes can continue for ages after the boat is gone so there's a lot of Nessie sightings that are actually just misidentified boat wakes weirdly there are tons of deer around Loch Ness and they quite regularly swim in the water which is totally bonkers if you're not thinking that a deer is going to be in the water and you see a deer swimming in the water. It's definitely not going to be the first thing that you think of. Theory number seven is that there really is some identified giant creature in Loch Ness. So there are newspaper reports going back to the 1880s and before of a big unidentified creature in Loch Ness. It looks like the legends around Loch Ness have been going on for a really, really, really long time. And I know that a part that comes from the legend of like St. Columba and all of that stuff, which is probably Christian propaganda for the time. And actually going to Loch Ness and seeing it, it makes sense that there are so many stories about it being filled with mysterious creatures because you just can't, you can't see the bottom. It's twice as deep as the North Sea And it's pitch black. That is mad. Older generations of people living in the Highlands going back centuries must have been quite frightened of Loch Ness or must have been kind of given it a bit of reverence and respected how mysterious it was because you have this huge expanse of crazy deep water, deep, so deep that you can't even fathom how deep it is. That's jet black and probably in their minds full of mystery and, you know, really still is today. So is it possible that there's a big mysterious creature living in Loch Ness. And that brings me to theory number eight, which is probably the most popular theory. And that is that the monster living in Loch Ness is actually sturgeon. Sturgeon is a type of fish and they are enormous. I don't think I realised how big these things are. Honestly, Google how big sturgeons get. They are, they are so big and this was the theory that I was completely set on. I thought 
it's definitely a sturgeon. It has to be a sturgeon. They do sometimes come up to the surface of the water. They generally live at really big depths in water. They can survive in much colder water. So it seems like it's perfect. The perfect place for sturgeon to be. As I said, Loch Ness is open to the sea at the north end. So there's some speculation that maybe sturgeon are ending up in Loch Ness when they're searching for a mate. So they pop into Loch Ness, maybe accidentally looking for a mate. And when they surface, they have these huge backs that look like an upturned boat. It certainly would account for the humps that are seen slicing out of the water. But there's a problem with that. I always thought this was the most likely explanation. However, in that DNA study that I mentioned earlier by Professor Gemmel from the University of New Zealand, when he studied all of the DNA and found that there was 25% of the DNA that was unaccounted for, he also found that in all of the DNA that he went through, in all of the samples of water, there was absolutely no DNA of sturgeon found anywhere in the lock. So here's my definitive definitive thoughts on this. Do I think there's a big dinosaur living in Loch Ness? No. Do I want there to be a big dinosaur living in Loch Ness? Yes, absolutely. Would I be mad if Nessie appeared one day as a big plesiosaur? No, I'd be delighted. I'd be like, what a magical mystery to have been solved. In reality, I think there's probably some huge version of a known species, like a sturgeon, like an eel, whatever it is, that is genuinely living in Loch Ness. And that scientists, they just haven't found it yet. Or they just haven't realised that it has the capacity to live there. The thing that really struck me that I kept coming back to and going, wow, that is amazing, is that they didn't know that Arctic char was the most abundant species of fish in Loch Ness until the 1980s. That, to me, is pretty crazy. So could there be something hiding in Loch Ness that is absolutely enormous that they just haven't quite found yet? Very possibly. And I just would like to say as a closing point that when I was doing my research for this particular episode, I found a story about a lady who was walking her dog along the shores of Loch Ness and she saw in the distance what looked to be a child. Well, she thought it was a child at first and she thought, oh, how bizarre. Like, why is there a child standing there on their own? And then as she got closer... Both her and her dog froze to the spot and they both saw that it wasn't a child and it wasn't even human from what she could see. And she thought that it was some sort of alien and she really, really panicked. And then in an instant, this alien, this creature, whatever it was, transformed into an impossibly large owl which flew up into the air and took off across Loch Ness. So let me tell you, in all those theories, I bet you didn't think that you'd find out in this episode that the Loch Ness Monster is actually an owl, because you know what, people? It's always owls. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Make sure that you check out those sources that I talked about in the episode and that are all linked in this episode if you want to find out more about the Loch Ness Monster and to just troll through all the years and years of encounters. It's so fascinating to read. If you are listening to this and you're thinking, my God, I cannot get enough of these stories, then you can sign up to Patreon where for $5 a month or $2 a month you get access to not only heaps of extra content but also all of the main episodes and mini episodes ad free. If you want to find out anything else about Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast you can do so by checking out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com and on that note I shall see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 